From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Who brutally raped and murdered James and Anne Benokin in their Juneau apartment in 1982? Nearly four decades later, many questions remain unanswered. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. On April 13, 1982, a Juno resident named Martha noticed broken glass in her neighbor's apartment window. Martha worked on the Marine Highway Ferry System, and after a stint on the ferry, she had just returned to her home at the Lower F&L Apartment Building on South Franklin Street. Martha also noted a terrible smell emanating from Apartment C, so she called the building manager, Priscilla, and the two women cautiously approached the residents. When no one answered their repeated knocks, the manager unlocked the door and the two women entered the apartment to face a horrific scene. Both James and Anne Benolkin had been bound, beaten, and stabbed to death. James was partially undressed, and the naked body of Anne lay face up on a mattress on the floor. The state of the body suggested one or more perpetrators sexually assaulted both Anne, age 61, and James, 63. The pathologist would soon determine both victims sustained numerous stab wounds and died at least nine days before Martha and Priscilla found them. When police arrived at the Benokins' apartment, the stench of the decaying bodies engulfed them, and the detectives traded off working the scene because no one could stand to spend much time in the apartment. Police also broke out windows to let in some fresh air. This act might have made working in the apartment more tolerable, but it undoubtedly contaminated an already messy crime scene. Detectives found the Benokins' apartment cluttered and filthy. Old linoleum covered the floors, and when officers attempted to remove pieces of the flooring to take back to the lab for closer analysis, the ancient linoleum crumbled into a fine dust. An Alaska State Trooper crime scene analyst aided in processing the scene, and he surprised detectives when he dusted an ashtray for fingerprints and then dumped the cigarette butts it contained into the toilet, flushing away possible crucial evidence. The Benokins apartment consisted of a kitchen, a living room bedroom area, and a bathroom. The murders occurred in the living room bedroom area. Anne Benokin lay on a mattress on the floor. She was naked except for a cloth covering her midsection. Yarn dangled from an ankle and scarves fluttered from her wrists, suggesting she'd been bound. 
Detectives immediately noted Anne had been beaten and stabbed numerous times. Blood spatter surrounded her body on the floor and splashed six to seven feet up the walls. A void in the spatter suggested someone kneeled next to her while he killed her. A paper bag containing a wine bottle lay on the floor within reach of the assailant. Police found a broken knife blade underneath Anne's body, and the medical examiner later determined Anne had sustained more than 60 stab wounds. Police collected the black hair from between Anne's legs. James Binokin had also been beaten and stabbed. He lay on the floor with his pants pulled down, and police assumed he too had been sexually assaulted. Authorities found a foreign hair on James's body and collected semen and blood from his pants. Although this was in the era before DNA analysis, detectives preserved the samples and sent them to the FBI laboratory. A 16-year-old girl staying in apartment B next to the Binokin's apartment told police she heard Anne and James walking up the stairs to their apartment on the night of April 4th. Two men accompanied the pair, and it sounded as if the men were helping Anne back to her apartment. The girl said she heard Anne repeatedly thank the men for their assistance, telling them either she or someone she knew had been raped. The girl could not determine from Anne's words if the rape happened that night or sometime in the past. Detectives learned Anne and James Binokin lived on a small, fixed income. They were heavy drinkers and well-known among the homeless community in Juneau. The medical examiner estimated the Binokins had been dead approximately nine days when the neighbor and apartment manager discovered their bodies on April 13th. Although this estimate represented only a best guess, police decided the Binokins were murdered on April 4th, not long after they were last seen. The paper bag holding the wine bottle provided the most promising lead in the case. A clear fingerprint on the bag led authorities to 20-year-old Newton Lambert, an unsophisticated young man who suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome and seizure disorder. Lambert also struggled with alcoholism. Lambert said he had no idea how a bag with his fingerprint on it ended up in the Binokin's apartment. He told detectives he had been clean and sober for several months, but to celebrate his 20th birthday, he went on a bender in early April, drinking heavily and taking drugs, including cocaine and LSD. Detectives informed Lambert that a Juneau policeman had seen him in the vicinity of the Binokin's apartment on April 4th. But Lambert claimed he was in the area to visit a friend and said he then spent the night in a cave under a bridge. Newton Lambert's friend, Gary Moses, came forward and said Lambert asked him to lie about his whereabouts on the night in question. Moses' girlfriend confirmed the statement. Police also learned Lambert was treated at an emergency room on April 5th for an arm wound, and Lambert reportedly bought a new knife a few days after the murders. Police decided to re-interview Lambert, and this time they went at him hard. They used an interview style known as the Reed Technique, named after a former Chicago policeman who developed the approach. The Reed style of interrogation uses psychology coupled with long hours of endless questioning. 
where detectives often try to convince the suspect he could go home if he would only confess. The Reed technique boasts a high success rate for gaining confessions, but many scientists and legal scholars worry the interrogation style has also encouraged numerous false confessions, especially from unsophisticated detainees who believe what their interrogators tell them. Newton Lambert was just the sort of suspect detectives could coerce into giving a false confession. But while Lambert never admitted to killing the Benolkins, he did himself no favors by some of the statements he made to police. When first questioned, he told detectives he had no memory of being in the Benolkins' apartment. But during a later interrogation, Lambert said he was in the apartment, had a seizure, saw flashes of red, and heard voices. He later woke up in the Benokens' bathtub. As he went to leave the apartment, he discovered the bloody bodies of James and Anne Benokin. At one point, Lambert even claimed he thought he might have killed them. Do these statements mean he assaulted and murdered the Benokins, or do they mean he suffered a seizure while someone else raped and murdered James and Anne Benokin? While detectives concentrated on Newton Lambert, Emmanuel Teller, a repeat criminal offender in Juneau, bragged to his friends that he murdered James and Anne Benokin. Since the last witnesses to see the Benokins reported they noticed the couple in the company of two black-haired men, detectives believed they found their killers. Both Newton Lambert and Emmanuel Teller had black hair. Let me take a short break to thank the folks at the puzzle game app Best Fiends for supporting Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I appreciate you sponsoring my podcast. Sometimes writing true crime gets all too real. I had trouble getting the crime scene at the Benokens' apartment in this episode out of my head. So I did what I usually do lately when I want to lighten my mood and focus on something other than the brutal acts of a killer. I grabbed my phone and played Best Fiends for 15 minutes. And for those few minutes, I thought about nothing other than collecting leaves and releasing cute little meteor mites from their cages. I'll admit it took me three tries, but when I successfully finished the level, I smiled as my best fiends cheered, and then I returned to editing this true crime story. Manage the stress or boredom in your life. Best Fiends is a fun game, and you can download it and play it anywhere offline. The game sharpens my mind and lightens my spirit, and I know you'll enjoy it too. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The trial for Newton Lambert began in late 1983. 
In addition to Lambert's possibly self-incriminating statements to police, the prosecution's primary physical evidence consisted of Lambert's fingerprint on the paper bag found in the apartment, the broken knife blade discovered under Anne's body, coupled with the fact that Lambert bought a new knife a few days after the murders, and the black hair collected from between Anne Benokin's legs. The prosecution also noted Lambert received treatment for an arm wound at a hospital emergency room around the time of the murders, and Lambert's friend Gary Moses testified Lambert asked him to lie about Lambert's whereabouts on April 4th, when police suspect the Minokins were murdered. The prosecutor called FBI agent Michael Malone, a purported hair analysis expert, to the stand to testify about the black hair found between Ann Mendelkin's legs. He testified the hair almost certainly belonged to Newton Lambert, and this statement proved to be some of the most damning testimony in the trial. Malone maintained there was only a 1 in 5,000 chance the hair fiber found at the crime scene did not belong to Newton Lambert, but Malone could offer no data to support this claim. Ten years later, in 1993, Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, an employee at the FBI laboratory, exposed Agent Michael Malone and 13 other employees at the laboratory for sloppy work, fabricating evidence, and lying at trials to aid the prosecution. A 1997 report from the Department of Justice's Office of the Inspector General upheld Whitehurst's claims and cited Malone as one of several crime lab employees who conducted inaccurate tests and made false claims. Malone resigned before the FBI could fire him, but defense attorneys are still trying to undo the damage of his false testimony in hundreds of cases across the country. At one time, Malone was considered the country's leading expert on hair fiber analysis, but he lied about the amount of information a scientist could learn by visually examining a hair fiber. The prosecutor relied heavily on FBI agent Malone's testimony during the closing argument in the case of Newton Lambert. How much did Malone's false statements sway the jury? The jury found Newton Lambert not guilty of the assault and murder of James Vanilkin, but guilty of sexually assaulting and murdering Anne Vanilkin. The judge sentenced him to 99 years in prison. As soon as Lambert's trial ended, the prosecution of Emmanuel Tellus began. Although Tellus had bragged to acquaintances about committing the murders, he maintained his innocence when interviewed by the police. With no confession and no physical evidence placing him in the Benolkins' apartment around the time and date of the murders, the jury found Tellus not guilty of killing Anne and James Benolkin. The jury would not have the last say on Tellus's guilt or innocence, though. After his acquittal in the Benolkin case, authorities arrested Emmanuel Tellus several times over the next few months, including three times for criminal trespass, once for disorderly conduct, and once for assault. All the charges were misdemeanors, but Tellus served nine months for the assault charge. 
Two weeks after Tellis left prison for doing time on the assault charge, he entered the Front Street Cafe in Juneau at 3 a.m. to drink a cup of coffee. Twenty minutes later, Victor Johnson, one of Tellis's high school classmates and a former friend, entered the cafe and ordered toast and coffee. After finishing his coffee, Johnson left the restaurant and returned 15 minutes later carrying a rifle. Johnson approached Tellis, and a waitress heard Johnson quietly say to Tellis, Say your last words before you die. Then he pointed the rifle at Tellis and shot him, killing him instantly. Johnson handed his gun to another cafe patron, sat at the bar, and waited for the police to arrive and arrest him. He offered authorities no reason for murdering Emmanuel Tellis. Those who knew Emanuel Tellis, including police and prosecutors, predicted Tellis would not live long after the jury acquitted him for the Benolkin murders. The waitress who saw Johnson shoot Tellis said, A lot of folks down here have known something like this was brewing. There was just no place for Tellis here anymore. Everybody was scared of him, and he wouldn't leave people alone. When later asked if Tellus had confessed to him about killing the Benolkins, Victor Johnson said Tellus did not say anything, but Johnson said he could read the guilt on Tellus's face. In 2012, Newton Lambert's attorney applied for post-conviction relief for his client under a new state law. The attorney wanted the still-preserved semen and blood samples collected from James Benolkin's pants and sweatshirt tested. Lambert faced two significant obstacles for this motion to succeed. First, to have a case considered for post-conviction relief, the defendant must maintain his innocence. And Lambert repeatedly claimed he could not remember what happened or if he was even present when the Benokins were murdered. The second problem with the application for post-conviction relief was that the semen and foreign blood stain were collected from James Benokin, and the jury found Lambert not guilty of assaulting and murdering James. Even if the results showed this DNA did not belong to Lambert, it would not exonerate Lambert for the rape and murder of Anne Benokin. Lambert's attorney argued that if the blood and semen belonged to someone other than Newton Lambert or Emanuel Tellis, they could run the samples through CODIS, the National Criminal DNA Data Bank, and perhaps arrest a third, and maybe even a fourth person, if the DNA and blood belonged to two different people. These people might confess and shed light on whether Lambert had any involvement in the killings. Lambert's motion to have the blood sample and semen tested for DNA made it to the Alaska Court of Appeals, where the judges agreed with the previous decision rendered by the Superior Court. They ruled that testing the DNA on James's body would not prove Lambert's innocence for Anne's murder. Judge Marjorie Allard, though, wrote an opinion stating that the state should still consider testing the DNA because the results might clear up some of the questions surrounding the murders. 
She said if the results match DNA profiles in CODIS, then the testing could potentially lead to the identification and future prosecution of at least one, if not two, previously unknown perpetrators from this 30-year-old double homicide. Who killed the Benolkins? The jury acquitted Emmanuel Tellis, but an actual jury of his peers believed him guilty of the crime, and a former friend carried out his execution. I'm not sure even Newton Lambert knows if he sexually assaulted and brutally murdered James and Ann Benolkin. He admitted he was drunk and high. Lambert claimed he blacked out and suffered a seizure. He hallucinated, heard voices, and saw flashes of red. He then said he woke up in the Benokin's bathtub. An injury on his arm may or may not have been related to the murders. If Newton Lambert had nothing to do with the killings, he had the bad luck of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Alaska is a state strapped for cash, so I can understand why prosecutors don't want to test DNA from a decades-old crime. The DNA test itself might not be expensive, but if the results lead to more arrests, trials, and appeals, the costs will mount. It is unlikely the DNA results would free Newton Lambert, but the results could finally answer the question of who assaulted and murdered James Benokin. Was the killer Emmanuel Tellis, Newton Lambert, or someone else? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.